Well, uh, hopefully you got some bad coffee or tea and a moment to get a break. Come on back in and take a seat. How are you guys uh, you doing all right? Great job. Thank you for being here on a Saturday, at least where I'm from. The weekend is that's sacred space. So really uh, happy that you are here. I just want to keep moving on. Um, so we're chatting about this idea of how we change and specifically how we grow and mature to become more like Jesus of Nazareth and in doing so, our true self. If you want to call that transformation, or if you want to call that just discipleship to Jesus, or as I said, I prefer apprenticeship to Jesus, that's what we're getting after. And now I want to move on. We have that first paradigm of how we just change in general, how we're formed and shaped to be more like the stories we believe, our habits, our relationships, and our environment. And next I want to talk about how we change to become more like Jesus. And with the idea that all formation is counterformation, meaning in order to become like Jesus, we don't get the luxury of starting from a blank slate. We, there's an inertia that we have to actually have to swim upstream against the inertia of a Melbourne, of the digital world, and our iPhone, and all of that. Now, before we jump into our next paradigm, first I want to beat up on two myths and misconceptions, because what I'm about to lay out, at least the first time, for me, when I started to wrap my head around this, it was, it was in, all, in all honesty, it was unsettling for me, in particular as a pastor, because I realized that here I was, 30-something years old, I had a seminary degree, I'd been reading my entire life, grew up, um, son of a pastor in a great church up and down the west coast of America, I was leading a mega church, and if you had asked me five years ago, John Mark, how do people actually change to become more like Jesus? In all honesty, if I was actually honest, I would have said, I have no idea. But I would not have said that. I would have made up something instead and quoted a Bible verse or two. And you would have thought, wow, I don't know what that means, but wow, he knows something. Um, The reality was I, I, I had a cursory at best grasp on how we actually change, which was, a, that was, a, that was an epiphany moment for me. You can actually know the Bible, know theology, know how to lead a church, and not actually know how people change, including your own life, to become more like Jesus. So that was, that's a whole other, like, myopic kind of biopic moment. But all that to say, there are two myths and misconceptions that I hear on a regular basis about how we change. So first, I just want to beat up on those a little bit. In love, if you were here yesterday, um, this is a little bit of repetition, so feel free to check up on your email or tweet um, while I'm doing this. And it won't take that long, and then we'll move forward to the next paradigm. The first myth is this, and it's that all you need to know is the Bible. So I don't know what your church background is or if you even have one. This is more um, if you grew up in the Reformed tradition or in a Bible church tradition or in a more intellectual expression of faith, uh, which is what I grew up in in kind of the Bay Area of California, then this is kind of the working theory of spiritual formation. And it's basically, everything is about the Bible. And I'm a Bible teacher, so I love the Bible. And please don't misread me here as somehow down on the Bible or on teaching. But in a certain vein of the church that is not small, it is very large across the Western world, basically the Bible is front and center in um, spiritual formation and apprenticeship to Jesus. So there's a lot of history there. Of course, in the Reformation, you have Martin Luther, you have, and, and John Calvin, and Zwigli, and many others that kind of created the modern art form that we call the sermon. Now, the sermon goes all the way back to the early church, back to Jesus himself, 
but it was never necessarily the center of gravity. So you even see one of the best ways to tell the story of church history is through architecture and the shifts in church architecture over the last 2,000 years from the home, which was the original form of church architecture, a table and a living room or a courtyard, to kind of the more medieval model where the table for the Lord's Supper was the center. Actually, if you ever go into a really old cathedral in Europe, you can't even talk out loud. Like, you notice it's so, like, there's so much reverberation because there was no sermon, uh, and the mass or whatever was said in a language that people could not even speak anymore. And then the Reformation, you have this fascinating architectural shift from the altar as the center point. If you're in a pre-Reformation church, not a lot left, you go on a trip to Europe or whatever, then the altar is still, to this day, in a Catholic church, the altar is the center of gravity. It's right there in the middle. Then in the Reformation, you have the creation of the pulpit, and the altar gets moved off to the side or to the back of the room, and the pulpit gets put down front. And there was this subtle shift from the bread and the cup as the centerpiece of a gathering to the sermon as the centerpiece of a gathering. Then we could tell a whole other story about the creation of a theater-based church, and, uh, which is actually quite old. The church we meet in is 1894, beautiful old building. Actually, it's a theater. You walk in, there's a stage, there's slope seating. It's like the beginning of the kind of mega church thing. That's a whole other teaching series we don't have time for. My point is, in the Reformation, which has shaped the world that we call home, there was this shuttle shift from... The bread and the cup is the center of gravity in the weekend gathering and of the church to the sermon. And Luther and many others, their basic working theory of spiritual formation was that we are shaped by the preaching of the gospel or Bible teaching or evangelism as we would call it today. And basically in that model of church, the sermon becomes the primary vehicle by which we are transformed to be more like Jesus. The problem is that this is a working theory that was very shaped by kind of the Enlightenment. So obviously the world that we call home, we all know, is very shaped by what happened a few hundred years ago. And you have a lot of thinkers, of course, the French thinker Descartes, his famous line, I think, therefore... I am, he called human beings res cogitans in Latin, or thinking things. You have Benjamin Franklin on his little line about how the purpose of the body is to carry the brain around. And it was basically this idea that now we have evolved and we're enlightened now and we have, we're rational. Like all this talk was about, you know, ration and the human mind. And basically you are a brain on legs. That was the working theory of what it means to be human. That was the working kind of anthropology. The problem is that it's wrong. And that's not just my opinion. That's like scientific data is behind it. And everybody now knows that it's basically wrong. And this is not rocket scientists. If this was true, then all you would need to do to change was to get new information in your head. If you wanted to like all of a sudden start to eat healthy, all you'd have to do is read a book on healthy eating and you would never eat sugar again, never eat pizza again, never eat, I don't know what's bad here. Like you, I don't know what's coffee. You never drink coffee again. Um, the philosopher Jamie K.A. Smith, who Mark and I know, he's a friend and great thinker, and I'll quote him more later on today, he has this great little book on this idea called You Are What You Love, and he tells this story about, um, you have a Costco here now, right? So do you guys know what Costco is? Okay, good, because you need to know that for this to work. Um, so he, he's from the Midwest of America, which is like a cultural wasteland, okay? So he lives in Michigan. It's like everything, we call, we call it meat and potatoes, which is just like bad food, basically. There's no spice, no flavor, no life. And, uh, and so he grew up in kind of meat and potatoes, as we would say. But his wife, who's delightful, starts to get all into the slow food movement and farm-to-table and plant-based and local, organic, natural, raw foods and all of this. 
And he's like, what is wrong with you? But he's a philosopher, so she says, here's a book. You need to read this book, you know? So he tells this story about reading this book about the slow food movement, and he's just, like, enthralled. Like, their highlighter out, notepad out, taking notes. Like, he's a philosopher, he's an intellectual, he's just there, all in. And then halfway through, he looks up, and he realizes that he's sitting in the food court of Costco eating a hot dog which is the antithesis of everything that he's reading about. This big box store, like nothing local, nothing, eating a hot dog, which is like the pinnacle of everything that's wrong with Western civilization, right? <laughs> One of the few things that America has to export to the world. And, um, and he realizes, my problem was that I still loved hot dogs, right? My problem was not in my mind. Like I had a, now a good working kind of theory of like health and diet and food and all and just and like even justice all all of that stuff there the problem is that knowing something is not the same as doing something which is still not the same as wanting to do something does that make sense and he has this great little line that i steal and it's this you can't think your way to christ likeness and that's because the way of jesus isn't just a set of ideas it is a way of life. It's a whole new way to be human. It's one of the ideas that we have lost in the Western church over the years. The problem is that even in the most anti-intellectual churches, and I'm not sure if you have that to the same degree here, but it's a huge thing in America, particularly in the Pentecostal traditions. I spent five years in a kind of semi-pseudo-Pentecostal church, and it was full-on anti-intellectual. Like, if you went to college, you had to, like, keep that a little bit of a secret because that meant, like, you did not actually have faith in God or something like that. It really, it's a weird American... Hopefully that's not a thing here. It's a weird Americanism. There's a stream of anti-intellectualism in our country as a whole. But what I have come to realize is that even in the most anti-intellectual churches, and I spent time in one, there was good things in there, but the approach to apprenticeship to Jesus is almost entirely intellectual. By intellectual, I don't mean like heady or cerebral or Mark Sayers quoting obscure Russian, whatever. I, I, I mean, I'm, that's not a slam. That's like, you're fantastic. Um, when I understand what you're saying, you're fantastic. Um, when I, when, what I mean by intellectual is it's information-based. So the, the working theory in churches that I grew up in was, okay, if you really want to grow and mature and become more like Jesus, come to Bible study on Wednesday night, like go extra. Or come to this small group and we'll read through this book or that book. Or meet with your mentor Joe on Thursday morning and he'll take you through basic doctrines or whatever. All good stuff. I'm not against any of that. Don't take that as a slam. But the problem is that information transfer alone does not yield transformation. And information is not a bad thing. So again, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We'll talk about that in a minute. The central role of the life of the mind. But information alone does not yield transformation. You can sit through the best teaching, lecture after lecture. You can have all of the information in your head about what it means to follow Jesus and even how you change. But if it doesn't ever get past that, you will never change. You will never grow. You'll never mature. You will never be transformed. So that's the first myth that especially in like a kind of more evangelical, Bible, Reformed, life of the mind, intellectual, which is especially true in a city like Melbourne, you have to wrestle with this. Second myth is on the other side of the spectrum, and it's this, you don't need to change anything, it's all God. So if that first myth is more common in kind of a Bible church or intellectual kind of tradition, the second one is much more common in a more charismatic or a Pentecostal tradition. I call it the matrix theory of spiritual formation. 
And I'm dating myself a little bit, but that's a good enough movie that hopefully you all know it, even if you're a 20-something. So you remember that scene in The Matrix when Trinity is up on the roof and they need a fast escape? You remember that? And they need a helicopter. And she goes like, I need, I forget the exact line, but I need a download for a da-da-da-da Huey helicopter. And she like puts her finger there and then like her eyes go tweaky a little bit or whatever. And there's a download also, da-da-da-da. And then she's like, okay. And she gets in the helicopter and they like roll off the top of the building slow motion. And she's like this incredible pilot and they fly off and they make an escape. Remember that? That's how I think a lot of people think transformation into the image of Jesus is like. It's like, Honestly, it's like I, this is like the charismatic kind of Pentecostal view. Like you come to church, you sing for four hours, and some, and you just wait. You're like Jesus, and you're like waiting for the zap from. You're waiting for the download. You're waiting for this moment where you're like, boom! Like ah, I was transformed by God. And again, similar to Bible teaching or the life of the mind, it's not all true. When I say a myth, there's truth in that. So I, I'm a charismatic. This is insider critique. I believe so much in the power of the Holy Spirit more than anything else. We'll talk more about this later to transform you. But the reality is that emotional experiences, even encounters with God, rarely produce lasting change unless they are backed up by a change of actual lifestyle. And the fact is that transformation in the long run is a joint effort between us and God. I love that saying, without him, this is an Augustine quote, and I actually don't love Augustine very much, but occasionally he just has some really great things to say. He had that little line, without him we can't, but without us he won't. And that, I think, is a great working theory of apprenticeship to Jesus. It is this joint, you and Jesus together, partnership. And if that language makes you nervous, especially if you, I grew up in a church tradition where anything that sounded at all like, you know, we would call it works-based righteousness was like off-limits. But there's this great little line that Willard had. He would say that grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And I don't know about, again, I don't know Australia well enough yet, but in America we often collapse and collude those two things together. Effort and earning are not the same thing. So my oldest is an 11-year-old. He's this little music kid. He always, you know, is listening to the new music, and he's a great little kid, wants to start his band and, like, all of that, working on his new first record and all this stuff right now. And, like, I'm like, you can't even, like, sing yet. But, okay, we're great. He's like, Dad, can we sell it on iTunes? I'm like, okay. Um, so he's really into music. And every single day, I make him practice his piano. Like, it's, like, non-optional. Call me a tyrant. You'll thank me one day, right? I make him practice his piano. Now, is he practicing his piano... And sometimes he wants to do it, most of the time he doesn't, even though he's in love with music, it's pra- at the end of the day it's practice. But is he practicing piano to learn, earn my love? Some of you are like, is he? No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet, do you really think I'm that bad? Um, no, he's not. Like, it has ap- zero effect on my love over him. He is loved, that's why I set aside $100 a month in our budget to pay for a piano teacher, to pay for his piano books. Like I put time and effort and energy, I sacrifice in order for him, but he has to do the work. And, and whether or not he does you know, his piano has little to no effect on my love or even my emotional posture toward him, but it has a huge effect on whether or not he becomes a musician. And the reality is my love alone, as fantastic as it is, is not going to make him into a great piano player. In order for that to happen, he has to partner with me in a sense. He has to do his part. I think that the reason that so many people, one of the reasons, there's a lot, but one of the reasons that there's so many, in particular at a millennial level or even a Gen X level, there's so much 
deconstruction and disenfranchisement with the church. Because a lot of people, I feel like a little bit, feel like they were sold a bill of goods, and they feel like, I thought I would be transformed, and I'm not. And I think one of, this, that's complex, one of the reasons for that is because I think a lot of people have never been informed about their role and their responsibility in transformation and haven't been informed about the reality that it is a joint partnership with God. Now, we'll talk more about this this afternoon. When I say joint partnership, I don't mean it's 50-50, right? I think God does all of the heavy lifting. I don't know what the breakdown is. I don't know if it's 99-1% or 80-20% or I don't know. But I think that God does all of the heavy lifting. But still, you have a role to play. And the more I read the Bible, and the more I follow Jesus, the more my view of God is shaped by both the Bible and by Jesus, the more I come to believe that God has, I think, almost a higher view of our freedom and responsibility than we do. And I think we often do not realize the staggering love and respect that God has for our freedom. And God is so loving, I think he rarely, if ever, will override your will. Rather, he's there. Everything for Jesus is invitation. Come, take up your cross, follow me. You don't want to? Okay we'll move on. And it's not an apathetic indifference. It's an, in, it's an invitational love. And the reality is that, yes, there are moments of encounter when we are touched by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But those are the beginning, not the end. And those have to be followed by us where we step in and play our part, our role. And we'll talk more about what exactly that is as we get farther. So, all of this leads me. Those are myths and misconceptions. The odds are, anything like me, I grew up in church traditions that were almost built around one of, if not two, of these myths and misconceptions. So, and there's bits and pieces of truth in both. So that, of course, leads me back to our question, how do we change? Well, have a look at this. This next paradigm is what I call intentional spiritual formation. If you prefer, just call it following Jesus and how you grow and mature and become more like him. Now, everything here, as I said, is counterformation. So if you have that last paradigm up in your mind or if you have a sketch of it in your notepad, think of each one over and against the other. So in place of the stories that we believe is teaching. So um, and by teaching is a broad category. You could call it the Bible. You could call it the life of the mind. All sorts of kind of labels you could put up there. What I mean there is that the best kind of teaching, when it's from the Bible, when it's from the way of Jesus, when it's out of the heart of God, it does more than tell you right from wrong. It gets into your head with a vision of the good life, and it undermines all of the other stories that we believe that are not true but are actually a lie, are from the devil who is the father of lies, like the original source of all the deception in the world. And it says, this is true and this is a lie. This is good and this, you think it's good. Actually, that's evil. This is the real true vision of the good life. That's what following Jesus is, what the teachings of Jesus are. It's why we have to recapture Jesus not only as the Savior, which most of the West has a pretty good handle on that, but also both and as a rabbi, as a teacher of a whole other way to be human. We forget that there's a whole lot that happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John before you get to the cross and the resurrection. And that bit is in there for a reason, in particular for Jesus the teacher. And this is aimed um, in a world with so many competing visions of the good life. The Melbourne vision of the good life, the materialism vision of the good life, the right, the left, the globalist, the nationalist, the white, the not like so many visions of this is the good life. As a follower of Jesus, you just believe that his vision of the good life is actually the best one on offer, and that living into the story that he believes, the story that he tells about what it means to be human, that actually is the roadmap to life. 
Now, the best kind of teaching does this. And teaching, more than anything, is aimed at your mind and your imagination, even more than your heart and definitely more than your life and your relationship. It's, it's aimed at like, how you think. So the classic text on this, again, I don't have time to like, turn to a Bible passage for each one of these, but the classic text is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Do you know, most of you know it. Do not be conformed by the world, but be what? Transform, metamorpho, there's our word, by the renewing of your mind. So what now, you know, all the scientific literature is called neuroplasticity, and you get that idea, that neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you think a thought, the more often you think that thought. This actually has profound and deep implications for following Jesus. It's rooted in the writings of the Old and the New Testament, this Hebrew idea of meditation on the scriptures, thinking God's thoughts after him. We are transformed, and the first step, this is what's right about the kind of all you need to know is study the Bible, Altogether, that's a myth, but that is the beginning point. I, especially the way I'm wired, the beginning point is often for the renewal of our mind. And this is why teaching on a Sunday or coming and you give us a whole Saturday to sit through a monologue. This is not a conversation. I love when pastors are like, I just want to have a conversation with you. It's like, you must be really socially awkward because you're the only one talking. <laughs> this is not like, that sounds cool and down to earth. It's not a conversation. Or if it is, you are really socially awkward, right? It's a lecture, or it's a teaching, or it's a talk, or it's a whatever. So where teaching plays a key role. Reading the Bible daily plays a key role. A lecture, a podcast, reading a book, the life of the mind, even mindfulness, all of this plays a key role in our transformation. Now that said, teaching or getting right ideas into our mind and our imagination is at the end. No, it's just the beginning. Where we go wrong is where we stop there. Next is, in place of our habits, is this idea of practice. Um, how many of you have read the Sermon on the Mount? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you, if maybe, you know, you're, you're people that would set aside a whole Saturday. Maybe even all of you, unless if you're brand new to Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm teaching through it right now. One of the reasons I identify so much with the kind of Anabaptist tradition in the church is because they make the Sermon on the Mount kind of front and center in a vision of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And it's all sorts of fascinating church history behind the Sermon on the Mount because there's all sorts of church traditions that essentially explain it away. And there's all, some of them are more sophisticated than others. But basically, people read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is kind of all the most important teachings of Jesus put into one place. It's like back in the, before Apple Music, there was like uh, Greatest Hits Records. Remember that? When a band kind of had didn't have anything good really to contribute to the world anymore. So they would put out a, a record or a CD um, that was like all of their greatest hits. Remember that? It's like a late, some of you are too young for that. It's the late 90s, early 2000s thing. The Sermon on the Mount is like, minus the loss of creativity part. It's like all of the best teachings of Jesus in one place. And so it's this beautiful vision from Jesus of Nazareth. It's a manifesto or a charter for the kingdom people, for the church, for how we follow Jesus. Right? Most of you get that. But it's so... The bar is set so high that a lot of people work, bend over backwards to explain it away. Now, actually, actually, if you pay attention, it's incredibly down to earth. Jesus is not, it's not like pie in the sky. Jesus is assuming that you get in trouble with people and you're mad and you're bitter and you lust after a woman on the street and you lie and you cheat and you want to kill or hurt or malign your enemy and you have contempt in your heart. It's actually very down to earth. It's not idealistic. It's very rooted in the human condition. But still, the bar is set really high. Like, how, how's the command, do not worry? How are you guys doing with that one? 
We have that one. He who looks at a woman, you know, lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, so I have that one down, but I'm guessing some of you still, from time to time, struggle with that, right? The bar is set really, really high. And one of the reasons that I think people explain it away is because they miss. People don't realize, I didn't even realize this until a few years ago, that at the very beginning and the very end of the sermon, like a bookend to the beginning and end, Jesus talks about this idea of practice. So there's this key line, there's kind of an intro to the Sermon on the Mount, and then the last paragraph right before he actually starts to teach, the classic, like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, the last little paragraph there, Jesus has this beautiful line, but whoever practices and teaches these commands that he's about to lay out will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then the very last paragraph, after he's done, is that well-known story. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know about this one, about the, the building project and the two kind of home construction people. And he, he talks about whoever hears these words of mine and, quote, puts them into practice will be like the person who built their house on the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and, quote, does not put them into practice will be like the person who built his house on sand. You know what I'm talking about. If not, go read Matthew 5 through 7. My point is, Jesus begins and he ends the sermon with this idea of practice. Meaning what? Meaning he just assumes this vision of a whole new way to be human is going to take a lifetime of practice in community. So when he says, do not worry, he doesn't expect you to just like, oh, cool, I won't do that anymore. Like, how's that working for you? He expects you then to go out and practice that, and not by yourself you in the Sermon on the Mount, with the exception of two or three, is plural, not singular. It's y'all, as people would say in the South, right? It's, it's to all of you. It's something that we do together in community. He just assumed that his whole way of life was a practice-based way of life. It was something that you had to practice with other followers of Jesus. Um, in the language of some of the spiritual formation literature, and we'll talk more about this later, it's not about trying really hard but it's about training really hard. So the best metaphor I can think of is running a marathon. Um, gosh, I can't believe I don't know this. Do you have miles here or kilometers? Kilometers. Okay, so I have no idea. How many kilometers is a marathon here? 40, 42? What, you don't know? You must not be runners. It's 26.2 miles. 40-something. We'll just say 40-something. Can we, does that work? Because um, right now you're all kind of speaking in tongues with no interpreter. So um, <laughs> I don't exactly know what you're saying. So how do you... Anybody here run a marathon? Half marathon? Like you're just drinking coffee? Okay, half marathon. We got some people. Great. Um, I was like, there's one guy in the back. Uh, Okay. Um, So how do you run a marathon? 40-something kilometers, 26.2 miles. Do you just wake up in the morning and go? Let's say you're out of shape. You're not a runner. You're overweight. You just have a flat white and a croissant all morning long, and you're not in good shape. You're not healthy, and you make the decision. Some, you're inspired by something. I'm, I'm going to run a marathon. How do you run a marathon? Do you wake up tomorrow morning and go run 40-something kilometers? No. What would happen if you tried and tried really hard? You would die. <laughs> you'd make it, depending on how out of shape you are, you'd make it to mile, you know, or kilometer, four, five, whatever, and then you would collapse on the side of the road, wheezing with your lungs leaking out onto the, you know, asphalt, and you would die. And maybe if you had, you know, Sarah there to, like, prophesy over you and pray for you and, like, on a bicycle next year or whatever, go, you can do it. Like, maybe you'd make it to kilometer six or seven, and then you'd die. But either way, you would die. And it does not matter how hard you tried, the reality is for most people, going out and running 40-something kilometers is impossible. 
Now, it's not that it can't be done. It's that it can't be done by you yet as you are. So how do you run a marathon? Well, it's not rocket science. If you've ever run a marathon or half marathon, you go out tomorrow morning and you run one kilometer. Then you take a day off. Then the next day you run two. And basic, there's all, you know, there's fancy kind of scientific stuff. The basic kind of way that you run a marathon is once a week you do what you call your long run, which at the beginning is like two kilometers. And you add on a kilometer or a mile or so every single week. And you go about three or four. Then you take a week off and you let your body kind of rest up. And so, you know, the first week it's two kilometers. Second week it's three. Third week it's four kilometers. Then you take a week off. Then it's four kilometers again. Then five, then six, then week off, then six, then seven, then eight. Over a long period of time, what happens? Six months go by. Most people train for a marathon for about a year. Say a year goes by. All of a sudden, you're up to your long run on a Saturday morning, and now you're out running 30 kilometers, 35 kilometers, 40 kilometers. Like, all of a sudden, you're doing something that a year ago you could not do. You become the kind of person for whom running 40-something kilometers is hard. It will always be hard. It's not easy but it is well within your capacity as a human being. Does that make sense? Not through trying really hard, but through training really hard. The problem is very few of us approach our apprenticeship to Jesus this way. So we hear a command, do not worry. We hear a sermon on worry, and we think, okay, this week I am going to try really hard to not worry. We make it to the parking, you know, what do you call it, a car park? Yeah, we call it a parking lot. Whatever. You make it out there. You make it to your car. You sit down and you get an email from your boss and all of a sudden you're just racked by anxiety over this, that, or the other. You failed. And you're like 20 minutes in to your week or something like that. Because the reality is that most of the way of Jesus will take a lifetime of practice. What if we were to rethink even the nature of what the church is as a community of practice, or a community that is practicing the way of Jesus, which is exactly that. It is a way. It is a way of life. I have this friend down in San Francisco, kind of quirky guy, really like him, and smart as a whip, and he did this thing uh, for years. He doesn't do it anymore, but he called it the Jesus Dojo, and I'm like, dude, that is the lamest name for a church I've ever heard in my life, and I'm like, what is up with the Jesus Dojo? And he had this great lame name. He had this great little pitch. And he said, you know, um, following Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. It is a practice. Yet our churches are set up more like a university lecture hall than like a karate dojo. And the reality is if you want to learn karate, you don't read a book about karate or watch a series of YouTube. Like, sure, that's a great starting point. But at some point, you've got to wax on, wax off. At some point, you have to go to a dojo, you need a mentor, you need somebody that actually knows karate, who's like a human being, not a YouTube character or whatever. You need a practice, you need a start, you need a lot. I don't, I don't know karate, I don't know what you do. But you apparently have to do something. What if we were to rethink our churches, almost like dojos for the way of Jesus? Again, so cool, so, that's not cool at all. But I love, I love the heart posture there. This is where practice, and we'll talk about this um, this afternoon, but this is where spiritual disciplines in the language of church history are essentially how you practice the way of Jesus. They are how you train really hard rather than try really hard. It's how you become the kind of person. And of course, you could apply this to anything. You could apply this to music if you're a musician. How do you like, learn how to play the piano? Through trying really hard? Sit down at the piano and you just try really hard to play Bach? 
No, you sit down and you do da 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 da. da. You start with a scale, like with one finger, like Mary had a my like eight year olds just started piano practice. Mary, I'm literally at home right now. It's Mary had a little lamb. Dun, dun, dun. You have that here. You all look confused. Okay, <laughs> like you don't have Mary had a little lamb. That's what's wrong with your country, you know. <laughs> Uh, Like you start there and you practice every single day and over years through practice you become the kind of person who is, you know, you play Beethoven, but not through trying hard, through training hard. The same is true of exercise. How do you become a good soccer player? How do you bench press your own weight? Not through like trying really hard. You do that, you will die. Through just like, you start with the bar, if like just the bar all by itself. You're like, it's like 20 pounds or something. You know, like that's, this is how, this is how we change. This is not rocket science. You change not through trying really hard, but through training really hard, which for the follower of Jesus means you organize your life around the spiritual disciplines, which is another way of saying you set up your life to intentionally experience the love and the reality of God every single minute of every, to the best of your ability. You make abiding in Jesus the number one goal in your life. If you want to take Jesus' language from John 15, you make that goal number one, and you do that through the spiritual disciplines. And out of that, through tra- not through training, through a life of practice, you and I are formed and shaped to become more like Jesus. Third, in place of our relationships is community. And what's the difference between relationships and community? Well, that's a, that's a bit arbitrary. Here's my working kind of line of demarcation. Relationships, we self-select based on preference. As I said, like attracts like. And that's not bad. Um, my friends, I self-select And they're basically other people. Most of my best friends are lead pastors of other churches in urban, secular, progressive cities, right? And I get along with them well, and we have a shared life, and we both kind of do the same thing for a living. And I, have some, I just have some beautiful, Mark is one, I just have some great friends around the world. And that's not a bad thing at all. Community, on the other hand, are other followers of Jesus in our neighborhood or in our city or in our church that we make a decision to follow Jesus alongside. And because you can't follow Jesus alone, and I just, you have to beat that drum on a regular basis if you have any millennials or any Americans. Or like We're so hyper-individualistic in Western society as a whole, and we forget you can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not have a disciple. He had disciples. You don't even really barely ever read about Jesus in a one-on-one conversation. Almost always it's Jesus and Peter, James, and John, or Jesus and the Twelve, or Jesus and Mary, Martha, and his friends. Jesus had friends. We often don't think about that. And Jesus had community. And here's why. Community, or life with other followers of Jesus, is the context where change happens. It's the medium through which our change happens. Because community does two things. It's very important. Exposure and encouragement. And please especially listen if you're a millennial and like you're, especially if you're very young, this is like you need to hear this. Exposure, when you live in community, whether that is a church or um, a small group or uh, a best friend or a circle of friends or a family or a spouse if you have one or a roommate, any kind of close up, you know, personal relationship, it's like, it's like you squeeze a sponge and you see what's actually inside of you. This is why um, so many single people think they're awesome until they get married. Do you see this? Do you see this pattern? It's like my church is, I think, 70, 60, it just went down a little bit, I think 67% single. And um, a lot of them are 20-somethings, 30-somethings. And so love is in the air. Jesus is in the air, and so is love. Um, 
And so I see this pattern that on a regular basis where I, I'll see a young guy who's a great, like, upstanding kind of bachelor in our church or whatever, and he'll fall in date and fall in love and propose, and, and they use, oh, I can't wait, I'm so looking forward to marriage. And, and then they, you know, and then about, they, they go through the wedding, and then, like, inevitably, they come to me about six months later, and they just have this blank look of confusion and despair. And, and they essentially will say, I have this conversation over and over, they'll essentially say, what is wrong with me? I'm just so, like, I got married, and I'm just so selfish, and apparently, like, the toilet paper is supposed to go, like, it's supposed to point back and go down, not, like, out. I didn't even know that was a thing, and I, like, I don't even, like, I just, like, I don't even, now I have to, like, take into account her schedule, and she's all upset with me, or, or, or vice versa. He's, all, like, and it's not that when people get married, they become worse human beings. It's that often before they're married, they have no idea just how messed up they actually are. <laughs> they lack the self-awareness, Right? Because community, whether that's marriage, or you don't have to be married to have this happen, a good, close relationship, uh, a, a co-worker, a staff kind of relationship, a church, any kind of close relationship, it does exposure. And it's actually a really good thing because it is exposes what's already true of you. Um, this is why so many of us, like, in that moment, then we bail because we just can't handle it. It exposes why so many people move from church to church, small group to small group, relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage, job to job, city to city. Because, and the problem is they keep thinking that it will, we'll start over, it'll be new. You won't start over, it won't be new. Because the problem is actually inside of you. So you take it into every work, into every church, into every small group, into every relationship. You think the problem is them, and it is them, but it's also you. And like you can't escape yourself. Like you follow you around. It's a deep, profound insight right there for you on this afternoon. And the reality is why actually community is life-giving. It's key even when it's really hard, even when you feel dysfunctional and healthy and they're mad at me and I are offended so and so and they offended me. Actually, that's really good. That's really healthy because it's exposing the areas in your life where your discipleship to Jesus is yet to touch and saying, here's where you need to grow and here's where you need to mature, and here's where you need to own your stuff, and here's where you need to become more self-aware, and here's where you need to join and partner and, and get with Jesus to like actually become your real true self. Now, the second thing that community does, healthy community, in dysfunctional community, that's all you get is exposure. In healthy community, in a Jesus kind of community, you also get encouragement. So then your small group leader, your pastor, your church, your brother or sister in Jesus, your family member, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your best friend, in a healthy kind of community, they say, hey, this in your life is really lame. But guess what? I love you and I believe in you. And I'm actually calling you past that because I see who Jesus is making you into. I say yes to that. I actually want to journey with you to become the real true version of who you actually are. Are, and, I, and I'm here to help. If that's prayer, if that's just constructive criticism, if that's love, if that's encouragement, how can I? That's what healthy community does is exposure and encouragement. Honestly, I get that living this way is hard. I am like on the introvert to extrovert scale. I'm all the way to the side of introvert, super, like very introverted. And so I, like, I could just be happy living in a library by myself with a bunch of dead people and books. Like, <laughs> that sounds great to me. Um, you know, one of the things we'll talk at, maybe this afternoon about is for every personality type, there are upstream disciplines and downstream disciplines. 
um, downstream disciplines, meaning there are some spiritual disciplines that just come really easy for you, really natural. So as an introvert, silence and solitude, which is really, for most people, that's the most radical, most hard of all the disciplines. I love it. It's like easy for me. I crave time just to be alone, read, pray, go on a walk, process. It's like vac- paid vacation for me. You know, I just love that. For other people, that's really hard. For me, um, and, I, and you, downstream disciplines are good. Like anything that's life-giving for you and Jesus, great. Go do it and do it a lot. But we also need upstream disciplines, which are the disciplines that are really hard and really difficult, and we, maybe we don't even enjoy them at all, but they are like getting right at the weak spot in our person. And so for me, an upstream discipline is community. So I have this little group of people. Um, you know, there's 14 of us, I think like 11 children or something heinous. And... Um, <laughs> And we, we, we share a meal every Tuesday night. It's the same group of people. We're six, seven years in now. Uh, we moved into the same neighborhood together. We get together. We sit in my living room. Summer right now, we sit on a picnic table on our front porch. We share a meal. How was your week? And we try to get together during the week. We go on vacation. We go camping every summer together. We sit together at church. We'll serve once in a while together. Just, just basic, simple, no rocket science. But through that act, that's one of the most important spiritual disciplines in my life, just sitting and having a meal with the same group of people every single week. And out of that place, stuff is exposed. And, you know, while at first it's really fun, like, oh, this is great, we're doing life together. And then it's kind of annoying because, like, we're doing life together and you're (laughs) kind of annoying, you know. But then comes those moments. I remember a number of years ago when I was going through this whole process, we started, we got to the place where we're like, all right, we just went around the circle and we're like, I want you to speak into my life. Is there anything that you see in my life that's out of sync with the way of Jesus? And then people said things that were out of line with the way of Jesus. And it was really scary and really hard. And I remember the guys just sitting around and saying, hey, John Mark, you're a great guy, we love you, but the way that you speak to your wife is not okay. You can be really condescending and really sarcastic and you can kind of make her feel stupid and that's not cool. And all of them said that. Like, that was the number one thing in my character. Man, I'm, I, need, I feel like the Spirit is leading me to another small group um, right now. <laughs> and in that moment, there's the temptation. I can bail. There's nobody here to make me do this. I can bail and just act like I'm fine and how I talk to my wife is, ah, well, whatever. Or I can say, no, let's do this. Exposure and encouragement. But these men weren't saying that to like slam me down. It's like, no, we love you. We, we see better in you. And, and we think there's a better marriage that God has for you. Now, for you, it might be something totally different. But do you have that depth of relationship? Do you have that bandwidth, that relational equity of community? I'm telling you, if you are not in community, you will never be transformed. At least not to the level that you ache for in the marrow of your bones. And by community, I'm going to clarify this. And I don't know if I'm stepping on toes. I do not mean church on Sunday. Unless if your church on Sunday is like 20 or 30 people in a house, that is not your community. It's great. I, love, I believe in church on Sunday. I'm giving my life to it. I'm there whether I'm paid or not. I believe, I believe in teaching. I believe, in, I believe in all of that. I don't even think of it as my community. Um, if you ask me what my church is, I actually don't talk about the Sunday experience. As much as I love my Sunday, I actually talk about my, the table in this 14 group. That's my, that's my first and foremost experience and expression of church. Sunday is very important. I believe in it. Please don't take that as a critique at all. But that's not necessarily community. This isn't community. There's dozens of people. I don't know how many people are here. There's a lot of people here. Community is when you're actually at that depth of relationship, of exposure and encouragement. Fourth, I need to move faster. We're running out of time here. What time is it? What time am I supposed to be done? Quarter till? Okay. Um, fourth, in place of our environment, 
We are formed, we are shaped by the Holy Spirit. And here's why, a couple of things here. The hope in prayer is that as we follow Jesus, as we organize our life around the spiritual disciplines in order to make, in the language of Jesus, abiding the number one goal of our life, the, the long-term kind of goal is that we start in such an awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit that our mind starts through neuroplasticity, through all, starts to default to God, whether we're driving in the car, on a walk to work, or on the train, or in the middle of email, our mind just starts to click back, click back, click back to God so often, and this takes years for a lot of people to get here, to click so often that He becomes our environment. More than our city, more than our phone, more than even the moment that we're in. It's like we're always in two places at once. We're on the train, or we're at the office, or we're raising a two-year-old, and we're in the presence of God. We're at church, and we're in the presence of God. We're in the gym, and we're in the presence of God. And the reason this is so important, the reason the Holy Spirit is in the middle of my diagram, and he's the largest, and he's touching all the... is because the Holy Spirit's involved in teaching right now. He's involved in practice when you read your Bible or Sabbath or whatever your spiritual discipline is. He's involved in community when you're sitting around a table and you're practicing the way with other people. He's involved in everything, and he is the center point. One of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, I don't have time to exegete it right now, but it's Galatians chapter 6. Um, I'm a big believer that some parts of the Bible are more important than others. It's all scripture, it's all God-breathed, but some parts are really important. And Galatians 6 is essentially Paul's teaching on John 15, which is the abide in the vine teaching from Jesus of Nazareth. And there's all sorts of, you know, he's stealing language right and left, and he's picking up and he's playing with Jesus' metaphor of the vine. And that's where that classic line is about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and which is a, an outline of the inner disposition once you have been transformed to become like Jesus. And a lot of people misread that line about the fruit of the Spirit and think of it as like a list of commands or a list of like virtues. So a lot of people read the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then they think, okay, I need to work on being more loving. I need to be work on being more joyful. I need to work on being more peaceful and not so stressed out. There are even like sermon series where they go through, you know, one at a time, which that's not a bad thing at all. But then the mantra is kind of, we're going to talk about love this week, and then you go work on being really loving this week. And that's not necessarily bad. Love is a virtue, and there are other commands in the New Testament to love. But Paul does not command you to be more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle. He doesn't command anything. There's one command in that entire passage, the very beginning, and it's the very end. At the very beginning, he says, live by the Spirit. And at the very end, he says, walk in the Spirit. One command. Live, whatever you want to call that. Live in the Spirit. Abide in the vine in the language of Jesus. Practice the presence of God in the language of Brother Lawrence. Pray in the language of most Catholic tradition. Whatever you want to call that. Live in the Spirit and the natural by think of a think of a vineyard think of a grape how does a grape like grow and mature it just stays connected to the vine how do you grow and mature to become more like jesus you just stay connected to jesus and and the medium through that is through the holy spirit this means that the the, the key task like the number one task I, I honestly think if you were to rate it that's an american kind of western thing that to rate it but if you were to rate it, i think the number one task is just to practice the presence of god to abide to be, live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. That more than anything, more than teaching, more than practice, even more than community, that when He, God Himself, becomes your environment, becomes the air you breathe, 
And your mind just goes there and goes there and goes there. And this might, this might take years of spiritual disciplines and you start to read your Bible in the morning and fix the hour of prayer. It might take, it takes years for a lot of people. But man, as that starts to become true of you, that, meaning he, more than anything, will transform you. Now, all of this happens over time. I need to say that. This does not happen. Like, there's no, like, great, now I have the paradigm. I'm going to do it this week. Like, this takes a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus, and that is so, such a hard pill to swallow in our fast-paced world. We want it all right now. We grew up with the microwave. And you have FedEx here? No? What, what do you have that's, like, Australian Post? <laughs> Whatever. Well, we have a quick mail in America. Whatever. The microwave and instant message and email and visa and a plane to fly around the world in a day. And so we're just used to the world at our fingertips. But you can't microwave character or put it in the post or email it or download it. it like it's, it's grown like a vine on a branch, slowly but surely, one inch at a time. And it takes a very long time. And there's no silver bullet. Like, our culture is obsessed with, like, the quick fix, the new app, the startup from Silicon Valley. Like, there's got to be a silver bullet out there. And even this, I think, sinks into the church. There's got to be some new, like, discipleship formula or, like, there's no formula. Like, this might sound kind of like, ooh, there's like a triangle with a rectangle on top. But it's not, this is ba- what am I basically saying, like, you know, li- read the Bible and do the disciplines and live in community with the Holy Spirit. This is not, there's, that's not rocket science. There's no formula to this, but we're like, we want a formula. We want, like, what's the secret? What's the killer app? How do I just, like, you know, step one, two, three, read this one book, listen to this one podcast, and boom, I'm transformed. There's not. It's just the long, slow, unglamorous life of following Jesus. And often, you don't even realize it, but you actually are changing. You don't even see it till it's so often. I've had this weird experience. Again, I'm about three, four years into kind of a whole reboot of my life and that kind of before and after moment. I've had this kind of surreal, I hesitate to say this because I don't want this to sound at all bragging. It's not my heart posture. Um, But I've had this weird experience the last month. There's been a few times where I've made a self-deprecating comment in a group of friends about my character and said, oh, I'm really lousy about this. And I won't even tell you what they are because then you won't think I'm as awesome as you do now. Um, And I've said, ah, man, so I hate how I'm like this. And there's been a few people that have only known me for two or three years who have looked at me really confused and who know me really well. I said, you're not like that. What are you talking about? And it's like hit me. Oh, I'm actually not like that anymore. I still think of myself as that. Again, I was that. But like, I've actually changed. And I still have a long ways to go, and I'm sure you're even picking that up now as you listen to me talk to you through the day. I still have a long ways to go. But it's one of those, you ever have those epiphany moments where you're like, oh, I'm really bad at this. And you realize, actually, no, I was, and I, I actually have changed. I've actually started to grow up and mature, and actually not who I was three years ago, or I'm not who I was a decade ago. But sometimes it's so slow, and it's so incremental, and it's so non-glamorous, and it's not sexy, and there's no fireworks, and it's just like you wake up in the morning, you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church every Sunday, show up for a thing once in a while, like you eat a meal with your community. It's just like, you just follow Jesus. It doesn't feel like rockets in the sky all the time. Sometimes, but not all the time. But actually, you are changing over a very long period of time. Some of you just feel like, I can never change. You can. You just got to keep at it. Well, you mean like for another few weeks? Well, I actually mean for another few decades. But like, you just got to keep at it. 
And if it's something that's really like deep in you, like for me, perfectionism is one of the main obstacles that I face to the, the life that Jesus has for me. It's just, just sucking the joy out of my life. That, it's so ingrained in me, um, my, kind of perfect, my issues with perfectionism. I'm not going to get over it and like, you know, through a year of therapy or I read a couple of books on perfectionism or I listen to a sermon series on perfectionism. Like, uh, Sarah gave a great teaching on perfectionism a couple of months ago. It was amazing. I listened to it. I took notes. It was great. Guess what? I'm still a perfectionist. <laughs> and that's not, that's not to slam your teaching. It was great. But it's going to take more than a great 40-minute talk from Sarah and like a little journal entry for me. To, it's so deeply woven into me. But I honestly think we were so defeatist. We kind of, well, that's who I am. That's who you are, but it doesn't have to be who you always are. Who will you become? And how long will it take? Well, it might take a long time. But don't give up. Like, keep at it. The slow and glamorous work of following Jesus. Finally, all of this happens through the hard knocks of life. Not just through experience. Hard knocks of life, my little Jay-Z reference there for you, just to like lighten the mood. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all know that life is not easy. Even in a beautiful city, I'm guessing that Melbourne is the same as Portland, behind the facade of wealth and $7 craft coffee and a great beer and beautiful modern design and beautiful people and a great weather, behind that facade, life is still hard. You know, maybe it's less hard here than other places. Great. But life is still hard. But as a follower of Jesus, the most hard, difficult, gut-wrenching experiences can actually become a catalyst to make you more like Jesus than anything else. You can actually grow and mature more in those moments than any other time in your life. This is not, again, this is not rocket science. It's James chapter 1. There are tons of scriptures on this one. The classic text is James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, here it is, mature and complete, not lacking anything. Over and over again, the writers of Scripture make the point that it's in the worst times of life, the times that we avoid and suffer and run away from and medicate through and fight like the plague, that's actually when we grow and mature in the most. Again, I don't know your culture, but I've seen the similarity here. America, for sure, is an entire nation built around escapism. Literally, it's escape from England. Even, even the Christian culture is the Anabaptist, Plymouth Brethren, let's, re- let's escape from the persecution. And that's not a bad thing. Persecution of Anabaptists in you know, Europe or whatever. And then every, let's just escape from our you know, British past. Let's get to a new place. Let's start over. And it's this whole nation built around the pursuit of happiness. But so much of the Western world is built around escapism. And that's because in a secular worldview, if you, again, back to the stories that we believe, in the secular story, there is no meaning and purpose in life other than just happiness, to feel good. Therefore, anything that takes away your happiness has no meaning, has no purpose. So any kind of suffering in your life, anything at all, is at best an interruption in what life is actually about. And at worst, if it's something that you can't get away, like my wife has a chronic illness, the odds are she won't ever get better. If it's something like that, or you, the death of a loved one, or divorce, or something that like, is unfixable, then it is a permanent obstacle and permanent disruption to what you think the meaning of life is, that is happiness. So the Western worldview, uh, Keller's book, Tim Keller has this great little book on suffering, and um, I love Keller, but he's from a very different theological kind of um, tradition than I am. So some of, I love his work, but some of my least favorite things he says are about like how to interpret the will of God and how God is, whether or not God is in control. So I was reading his book and I was expecting just to hate it as much as I love him. It was so good. I don't know if you guys have read this, but he has this whole half of the book 
is just this overview of all, about five or six of the main kind of worldviews from Christian to Muslim to Hindu, um, Eastern, Western, and how they each view suffering. And he has all this great sociological and psychological data that basically says the Western secular worldview is the worst worldview out of every option in human history for dealing with suffering. Like it's, it's better to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or anything but a secularist. Because if you're secular, there is no meaning and purpose to suffering. And so all you can do is escape. All you can do is watch Netflix or have another drink or make more money or get a vacation to wherever you people vacation. I don't know. You live in paradise. Why would you leave? But um, (laughs) wherever it is that you vacate, all you can do is work more hours, have more experiences, drink more coffee, distract yourself and escape and try to outrun the pain. But the very thing that our entire culture is built around escaping, and often we get sucked into the same escapism as followers of Jesus. We're not immune at all. Often, if we actually stop turn around and face it. Those moments, as evil as they are, as heinous as they are, I don't even think most of them are the will of God. I think they're anti the will of God. But those moments have the potential to catalyze you and grow you and mature you. You can grow through one hard year. You can grow more in that one year than some people grow over 20 years of a lifetime. Through one death of a dream, one disappointment of a marriage, of a life, of a business that was a failure, of whatever. Yes, that's gut-wrenching. Mourn it, grieve it, lament it. But at the same time, God has something for you in it. Even if it's not even his will, there's something. There's an invitation. Again, you can become who God made you to become no matter what your circumstances are. It's the beauty. This, you can do whether you're rich or whether you're poor whether you live in freedom or under the tyranny of whatever government, whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're educated or not, you can, you can follow Jesus. You can be transformed. And in the very moments that you and I often so, we just want to escape, we want to get it over with. God, end it, end it, end it, move me out. That's not even a bad impulse, I get it. But what if you were to just walk with Jesus through it? And just wake up every day, Jesus, this is hard. Read a psalm of lament. Where are you, God? Great. And then just say, God, I want, I want to walk through this moment with you. Whether it lasts a month or a year or a decade or a lifetime. I want to walk through this with you. And I want to open myself up to all that you have for me in it. And in doing so, be transformed. So, how do we change to become more like Jesus? Well, counter the stories that we believe were formed by teaching. Counter our habits were formed by practice for the spiritual disciplines. Counter our relationships were formed by community. Counter our environment, Melbourne and your phone, were formed by the Holy Spirit. All of this happens over time and through the hard knocks of life. So to circle back to our question, is change, this level of change, is full-on transformation possible? I mean, really full-on at a soul, inside-out level, the answer is yes, it's possible, but it's not inevitable. And it won't just happen if you go to church every week. And I'm all for, do that. It's great. It's a great place to start. And it won't just happen if you have an encounter with God. Do that. It's amazing. That's a great launch point forward. But if you actually want to grow and mature and get freedom and healing and become your real true self, you have to follow Jesus. You've got to practice the way of Jesus in community, all of it around the Holy Spirit for a very long time through some hard stuff. And you will become through apprenticeship to Jesus, through living on purpose, you can change. And if you're stuck, you can get unstuck. 
there's an area of your life that you just think, I will always be this way. No, that's not necessarily true. It might, either might, you might get free in a moment in worship, encounter with God, we pray for you. Mm-hmm. Or you might get free, free through 20 years of this practice, that community. But you can get free. You can get set right. You can get unstuck. And you can open your life up to the Holy Spirit. So a good little, good little starting point. Here's what I want to end with. Um, again, Jimmy K. Smith, that friend of Mark and ours, Mark and mine, he, uh, he talks about what he calls a liturgical audit. And that's a, it's a weird little phrase. His point is that if you think about that paradigm, for most of us, the, we all have a missing link. So we're like, I live in community, others of you don't. For most of us, that idea of practice is a missing link for a lot of us in our apprenticeship to Jesus. The spiritual disciplines, we'll talk about that this afternoon, are gone for a lot of people. And so he has this great little idea of a liturgical audit. What he means by liturgy is the rhythms and rituals and routines that make up our day-to-day life. These habits, or if you prefer, practices, or disciplines, or lack thereof, that shape our loves and our longings. And a great little starting point for you, and you won't have time to do it right now. Maybe go do it this afternoon, or get up early tomorrow morning and get your journal out, or go for a walk this coming week or over the weekend, just make a list of your liturgies, your habits. Just, just make a list of what you do in the morning. How do you start your day? What's the first thing you do when you get out of bed? Um, you go to, and then you go to the office. What do you do at night? Oh, I exercise, and then I go to the pub, or I do this, or I watch, whatever, whatever it is. Good, bad, don't, not even a value. Just make a list. Uh, what do you do on the weekend? Just make a list of all of your habits, and then see if you can connect um, one or two or some of those habits to your heart. See if you, and sometimes this takes a little bit, you might want to pull in your community, pull in a best friend, pull in a spouse. See if you can start to connect, start to ask the question, what are these habits doing in my heart? It might be something bad, it might be something good, the odds are it's something neutral. What is, what is Netflix doing to my heart? What is, you know, The People versus O.J. Simpson doing to my heart? Or what is this novel doing to my heart? Or what is the gym, like, good, bad, don't even, just what is it doing to my heart? And if and when you identify, and the odds are something will start to come to mind, you're like, oh, I think I'm doing this thing, and it's actually doing something in my heart that, that is not healthy, that is not moving me in the right direction. Here's a really simple, easy step to take in the week ahead. Just do a little habit replacement. Just take that out of your head. Just start with one. Don't like overall, I have 20 things. I'm going tomorrow morning. I'm fasting from 4 a.m. No, just start one or, two, one or two things. Just pick out one. Take that out of your life and replace it with a practice from the way of Jesus. And just watch what happens to your heart. I did this about a year ago. I felt like the Holy Spirit was stirring up in me um, to just give up TV and film for the most part. And I don't watch a ton of I watch way less than most people. Um, but I was like, all right. So I was resting with finally, I gave it up. And I just replaced it with, at night, um, I would just do a little prayer of examine and just take a moment just to breathe in and kind of replay my day in my mind's eye with Jesus. And sometimes read a quick little psalm. It wasn't some like hour long. I'm up naked praying in tongues like for revival. It was like I'm tired and worn out. I have three children and they're finally asleep. And I just would like sit in my chair for a minute and be like, oh, what happened today? Thank you. Just, okay. And that was so, it changed me. And I would sleep better at night. I'd wake up in the morning with this sense of like connection to the Holy Spirit before I even start my day. Almost like it was this ongoing, like I was with Jesus before bed and I went to sleep and I woke up and I'm still with Jesus. I'm not saying you need to give up Netflix. For most of you, that's just, I can't even go there. I'm not even saying that's a thing for you. Maybe for you it's something totally different. Maybe it's not a bad thing, it's a neutral thing. But for many of us, is there a, is there a habit in your life that's doing something to your loves and your longings that does not push you 
in the direction of Jesus. What would it look like just to give that up? And whatever you give up, like you can't outgive God. Whatever it is, Jesus is worth it. Because the best thing of following, about following Jesus is Jesus. Transformation is amazing. The person that you become as you follow Jesus will be the greatest reward that you get out of your life. But even more than the person you become is just to keep company with Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's life. That's joy. That's what you ache for. That's the depth. That's it. The best part of following Jesus is Jesus. And that's the open invite. Father, we just thank you for your son. Thank you for the spirit here now. We ask that you would bring to mind as we take time to listen and pray, whether it's this afternoon or in the morning or in the week ahead, I ask that you would bring to mind um, any habits and all habits, God, that are unhealthy for this stage in the journey. You would also bring to mind a practice from the way and that you would just take us forward, just one step at a time into all that you have for us. And God, I just pray that as you transform us over our lifetime in community, pray that you would deposit right now just faith that people would actually start to believe you for change and transformation. Faith in the young and faith in the old, those that have been here and have been following you for longer than I've been alive and have kind of like settled for a plateau and are okay with that, have gotten to good enough, pray that you would just remove faith in people um, to not settle for good but to become great in the definition of Jesus that kind of greatness to grow and mature into a saint into an elder to a man or woman of wisdom to a father and a mother into a patriarch or a matriarch of the family pray for those that are young that you I think of that line in 1 John I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one for those that are wrestling with the flesh and lustfulness in our society and addiction and emotional pain and doubt, I pray that as they wrestle with the evil one inside and outside that they would overcome and get freedom and health and life. I pray that above all, Jesus, you would just deposit your own presence by the Spirit and that you would just make your presence known to us and felt by us and that we would walk, that we'd that we would be a people who abide in the vine, who enjoy and keep company with you every single day. We ask for this. We have not because we ask not, so we ask. Thank you. Amen.